Content warning. This chapter of Brave New World contains various themes that may be disturbing to listeners, including public humiliation, sexualization of children, stalking and obsessive behavior, and trauma. Lots and lots and lots of trauma. Hey, hey, folks. Dave here. Andrew. And welcome to So Many Books. So Little Time. Today we will be continuing our read of Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, with chapter nine. Hmm. Feeling well today, Ruth? I'm okay. How are you doing I'm today, Ruth? bit stressed but it's okay what's to be expected oh yes you you you've got deadlines yes yes i do <laughs> how's that going <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it's 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 something yeah i i have a serious aversion to paperwork because i think it, which is i believe a universal experience most people don't like paperwork especially when it feels a bit redundant um but it is unfortunately the way the world works in terms of um, keeps people busy. Much like in Brave New World, everyone has a purpose and we need to create purposes. Uh... Keeping everyone busy. <laughs> Pretty much. It's, it's got to give someone busy work and unfortunately it goes everywhere. Navigating paperwork sometimes feels like you're walking into the jungle and there's no guide to help you navigate it, which ah, is very helpful. Unexplored territory. Well, no, it's not that it's unexplored. It's just that it's been, it's almost deliberately made almost impossible to navigate. If someone knows how to navigate it, then they can guide you through and tell you, don't step on this plant, stay away from this, don't touch that leaf. Um, but because that's uh, unlikely in in the circles that i'm in 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 um uh, academia in science we don't tend to respond like we just want to read research we just want to do research and read research we do want to have some most of us want to have ethics and ethical frameworks sure but the other paperwork that's just It, I understand why there's such a high attrition rate. That's all I can say. I've been thinking back to in my early, well, actually my whole 20s when I wanted to be a cartoonist. And, you know, uh, when, when the online thing opened up, it was kind of like, oh, cool. I can kind of chart these waters myself. But the thing is, like, I'm really happy to make the comics. But then there's the marketing and and then if you really want to make money you got to you know create merchandise and be able to sell merchandise so you got to know all that business and you know it helps also to have a really good website to keep people coming back so you got to know how to yeah. build a website and at the time maybe that's my failing because i was i just want to do the bare minimum of all those things just so i can make comics and maybe it's because my comics weren't that good that it what they weren't good enough to ignore everything else i was not wanting to put time into, but yeah, mm. it, it, it it's it's this thing where um, you kind of have to wear many hats these days. Well, yeah, and wearing many hats is not an issue. I'm I'm comfortable with that. It's just that when you have things that feel 
there is no purpose for it. There's no function. Mm. Like if there's marketing, okay, yeah, you need to do marketing to reach out to more people. Paperwork where you're having to explain the same thing just in, say, seven different ways. Seven? No. I mean, you're exaggerating, obviously, but... Yeah. Nothing. Or, no, or you're not. <laughs> I can't. There's no real translation for it. It's just some of it I understand because they want to monitor and maintain and have a record. But you're trying to measure something that is not measurable that way. Like it's trying to force a structure onto something that where it hasn't naturally developed. They're administering something where administration needs to actually be created that suits that framework. Ah, so, so they're trying to use a framework that uh, for something else in your yeah. department. Yeah, and it, it, it never ends well because you just end up with delays and frustration and um, when you're trying to explain, hey, yes, I ordered that thing, but I can't do any of my work until I actually have a functioning computer. Someone goes, well, why don't you just use that? It's like, well, I can't because what I need is a functioning computer in order to do any of my work, for example. And then it, it becomes a whole, why am I having to explain this same sentence in 20 different ways to justify why, why there are delays? Right. It's... um. To take it into literature, have you ever read uh, Franz Kafka's The Trial? No, no, I have that, not. That's kind of about the absurdity of bureaucracy. Yeah, it's just... Uh, although I've read worse. I've read people... I was watching some things where someone's going, Hi, yes, I'm a, I'm a um, marketing... Um, Someone in marketing or someone in animation goes, yes, I have to wait until this and that arrives before I can do the animation. And their supervisor telling them, well, hurry up. They're going, did I, did I not just tell you that I can't progress until the other people actually do their job? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I, it, it, it's, it's, um, yeah. It's that, 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 um, people not grasping that we're all dependent on each other and then telling a person one the person at the end of the chain to tell them to hurry up when they can't like what are they going to do they, they can't make the thing appear that they need for work to progress um and then same goes i know it have this all the time where someone says well you got to set up that laptop saying well i can't set up another laptop because it hasn't arrived yet we're waiting on it from we're waiting on it to yeah. arrive and they're like well hurry up then how yeah do i wait faster and i think a lot of that is because people in charge often are pressured by their superiors to make sure everything's working on time and even though that's impossible because you're waiting on someone else they feel compelled to still um yeah. that they they have to do their job by reminding you oh, it's let to fix the yeah <laughs> Um, fix yeah, yeah. They remind you that you know, uh, time is money and all all that other stuff. It's. I think basically what I'm saying is I've I've um, I have feel little sympathy pain. for middle managers. <laughs> I have well, I have sympathy for the people at the end of the chain, and I have sympathy for the people in the chain. My sympathy for middle management is limited because. Um, 
yeah. I, I, if you're not creating a workspace that is actually reflecting on the reality of the experience of the people in that said workplace, then you are contributing to the delusion and you are contributing to an unhealthy workplace, which means, of course, reduction in productivity and effectiveness. So, hey, you are actually being part of the problem. Because um, the more you've got someone who's breathing down your neck. Yeah the more someone down the line is going to go, oh, well, I'm going to drag my feet, which means someone else in the chain gets affected. Yeah. Uh, it's a head. Better get you. Headache. And, and you know the weird thing um, with as insane as the world of Brave New World has been, there hasn't really been a focus on like bureaucracy too much I, I I remember more about like 1984 about yeah, um, yeah. people getting halted when they wanted to do certain things. And... That's a different kind of bureaucracy. That's I think I think both of these worlds have this bureaucratic hellscape. <laughs> it's just that with one of them, the bureaucracy creates jobs. The bureaucracy in um, 1984 feels like a control tool. So it has to be more more overt, whereas the bureaucracy in Brave New World feels more like a, but this is how it's done. But this is how it's always done. It's scaffolding. And it's we need, scaffolding. We need these people here. Yeah. And everyone needs to be doing something, and everyone has a part to play, so therefore we give them this part to play. And the bureaucracy is like everywhere. Everyone is doing it. I guess it's also because... When I think of bureaucracy, I think of people having to jump through hoops and getting held up. I don't think of it as just, you know, to make sure things get done. Because in Brave New World, it feels like the bureaucracy is there to make sure everything runs smoothly. And I guess just because of a lot of books, TV, movies, all that, when I think bureaucracy, I think, oh, it's an impediment to things moving smoothly. Mm, 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 mm. That, 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 that. Yes, but that's probably because we live somewhere in between the two worlds. It gives people jobs, people are used to it existing, and then there's others for whom this is like chains, the chains that tie them back, and the hoops. Yeah, be okay. be because it's like, I just want to do this one thing. Why is it so difficult to do this one thing? I'm just trying to order some stuff for which the budget was allocated. I have to jump through a million hoops. The budget, okay. Get this logic. Budget that's been approved and signed off by four people, if not more. The items were listed. They are the same items that I'm trying to order, but they need to go through the whole approval process again for the payment to be released, even though the budget has already approved said items. And the same people essentially have to sign off every time I try and order through the university system. Why? So perhaps we should take your mind off this craziness <laughs> by going to yes. a world of the book. That is even worse. That's not an improvement. But we can try. At least this is fiction. Yes, but to to um, 
remind our listeners of what happened last time and also to jumpstart our own memory. Uh, we found out about the backstory of John. John has had a pretty crap life. Yes, and he, he kind yes. of, um, he, he doesn't fit in the society that he was brought up in because of who his mother is and how he looks. And now Bernard has asked him if he wants to come back to the society that Bernard doesn't feel like he belongs in. And at the same time, John has a romanticized, idealized notion of what this brave new world is like because mm. of his mother um, repeatedly saying that it's better, basically. And also his reading of Shakespeare making him think, oh, that's what that's like, kind of thing. Yeah, he, he, he doesn't know what, he has no concept of what this new world looks like. And I believe I asked you how you think he's going to take to it. And uh, you, you, you did not have a, a positive uh, view no. of how this is going to go down. This is a dystopian fiction. So, I mean, there's only so many options. And I don't think he's going to fit in. I think people are going to think he's strange and a bit of a, like, spectacle. And, of course, this is a society that is founded only on the amusement and pleasure of others and generally at the expense of others. So, no. It's not going to go well. Well, let me load up my Kindle and uh, we can dive into Especially because he uses the words mother and father and things like that. Yeah, that, that is a, those are smutty words. In, yeah, so in they're going to, he's going to cause a bit of a titter. <laughs> he, he might learn fairly quickly that that language is not appropriate. Oh. I don't know. I lack confidence. And also his obsession with Lenina is going to cost him. <laughs> Guaranteed. Yeah, yeah. That, I, I don't see that going well. Um, nope. Okay. okay. Nine. Lenina felt herself entitled after this day of queerness and horror to a complete and absolute holiday. As soon as they got back to the rest house, she swallowed six half-gram tablets of Soma, lay down on her bed, and within 10 minutes had embarked for lunar eternity. It would be 18 hours at the least before she was in time again. Bernard, meanwhile, lay pensive and wide-eyed in the dark. It was long after midnight before he fell asleep. Long after midnight. But his insomnia had not been fruitless. He had a plan. Punctually, on the following morning at 10 o'clock, the green-uniformed octoroon stepped out of his helicopter. Bernard was waiting for him among the agaves. Miss Crown's gone on summer holiday, he explained, can hardly be back before five, which leaves us seven hours. He could fly to Santa Fe, do all the business he had to do, and be a malpace again long before she woke up. She'll be quite safe here by herself. Safe as helicopters, the octoroon assured him. They climbed into the machine and started off at once. At 10.34, they landed on the roof of the Santa Fe post office. At 10.37, Bernard had got through to the World Controller's office in Whitehall. At 10.37, he was speaking to his Fordship's fourth personal secretary. At 10.44, he was repeating his story to the first secretary. And at 10.47 and a half, it was the deep, resonant voice of Mustafa Mond himself that sounded in his ears. I ventured to think, stammered Bernard, that your Fordship might find the matter of sufficient scientific interest. Yes, I do find it of sufficient scientific interest, said the deep voice. Bring these two individuals back to London with you. 
Your fortship is aware that I shall need a special permit. The necessary orders, said Mustafa Mond, are being sent to the warden of the reservation at this moment. You will proceed at once to the warden's office. Good morning, Mr. Marks. There was silence. Bernard hung up the receiver and hurried up to the roof. Warden's office, he said to the Gamma Green Octoroon. At 10.54, Bernard was shaking hands with the warden. Delighted, Mr. Marks, delighted. His boom was deferential. We have just received special orders. I know, said Bernard, interrupting him. I was talking to his fordship on the phone a moment ago. There's the thing that, that Helmholtz hates, that boasting <laughs> nastiness. Yeah. His bored tone implied that he was in the habit of talking to his fordship every day of the week. Yeah. <laughs> ba basically name dropping. <laughs> oh, God. So pathetic. Oh, yes, yes. I know the world controller. <laughs> yes, yes. I realize. Yes, yes. I'm a very important person. Yeah, he, he, he does need that, doesn't he? Mm. He dropped into a chair. If you'll kindly take all the necessary steps as soon as possible, as soon as possible, he emphatically repeated. He was thoroughly enjoying himself. At 11.03, he had all the necessary papers in his pocket. So How long was that? So it was from 10... So 10.44... Sorry, 10.37 to 11 what? 03. 03, that's fast. Mm. Maybe they don't have that much paperwork. I don't know. <laughs> or he knew, he knew how to get through the system. I mean, he said he spent all night thinking about this. That's true. That's true. He gamed the system. So long, he said patronizingly to the warden, who had accompanied him as far as the lift gates. So long. He walked across to the hotel, had a bath, a vibrovac massage, and an electrolytic shave. Listened into the morning's news, looked in for half an hour on the televisor, ate a leisured luncheon, and at half past two flew back with the octoroon to Malpais. The young man stood outside the rest house. Bernard, he called. Bernard! There was no answer. Noiseless on his deerskin moccasins, he ran up the steps and tried the door. The door was locked. They were gone. Gone. It was the most terrible thing that had ever happened to him. Uh. She had asked him to come and see them, and now they were gone. He sat down on the steps and cried. Half an hour later, it occurred to him to look through the window. The first thing he saw was a green suitcase with the initials LC painted on the lid. Sorry, can I just go back two steps? Mm-hmm. One, so Bernard decided to indulge himself in the the finer things in life for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Lenin is stuck in the hotel in their on the reservation place. Yes, on the uh, I think she's at wherever he took off from the helicopter. She's sleeping there. Yeah, because which he, is asked, there. he asked the uh, yeah. helicopter pilot if she yeah, they're okay temporary there. lodgings. Mm. So he's gone back to that nice hotel. Right? Yeah. And whereas she's still in the temporary lodgings. Oh, oh no, I think he's still in Santa Fe. Yes, th that's the point. Like, he was at the hotel. Oh, right, right, right. In Santa Fe, which they had both arrived to that she thought was really nice. Yeah? yeah. Um, and then, in the meantime, this is a second step. That second part is a split. So, yeah. at half past two, he flew back to Malpais. There should be a break there, but... There isn't. Our, our versions don't have it, yeah. Yeah. And then now we have um, John, presumably, having a complete meltdown because he thinks they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
he's a bit unhinged, I think. Well, yeah, he he's what seventeen, eighteen, and he's been raised in a fairly traumatic environment for him because his mother, yeah. anyway. But yes, so. And he spends his free time reading, reading Shakespeare, which you know, no drama at all within those stories. No. Half an hour later, it occurred to him to look through the window. The first thing he saw was a green suitcase with the initials LC painted on the lid. Joy flared up like fire within him. He picked up a stone. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, well, well I, I guess that's a way to, uh, to get in. Uh, mm. the, the smashed glass tinkled on the floor. A moment later, he was inside the room. He opened the green suitcase. And all at once, he was breathing Lenina's perfume, filling his lungs with her essential being. His heart beat wildly. For a moment, he was almost faint. Then, bending over the precious box, he touched, he lifted into the light, he examined. The zippers on Lenina's spare pair of viscose velveteen shorts were at first a puzzle, then solved a delight. Zip and then zip. Zip and then zip. He was enchanted. Her green slippers were the most beautiful things he had ever seen. He unfolded a pair of zippy caminics, blushed, put them hastily away again, but kissed a perfumed acetate handkerchief and wound a scarf round his neck. Opening a box, he spilt a cloud of scented powder. His hands were flowery with the stuff. He wiped them on his chest, on his shoulders, on his bare arms. Delicious perfume. He shut his eyes. He rubbed his cheek against his own powdered arm touch of smooth skin against his face, scent in his nostrils of musky dust, her real presence. Lenina, he whispered. Lenina. A noise made him start, made him guiltily turn. He crammed up his thieveries into the suitcase and shut the lid, then listened again, looked. Not a sign of life, not a sound, and yet he had certainly heard something, something like a sigh, something like the creak of a board. He tiptoed to the door and, cautiously opening it, found himself looking onto a broad landing. On the opposite side of the landing was another door, ajar. He stepped out, pushed, peeped. There, on a low bed, the sheet flung back, dressed in a pair of pink one-piece zippy jammas, lay Lenina, fast asleep and so beautiful in the midst of her curls. So basically, John is being creepy stalker creep. Yep. He's being a teenage boy with no boundaries who's infatuated. Yeah, creepy stalker creep. Yes. I also love just the weird names of the clothes, like Zippy Jammas, and before there was some, let me find it, the weird name for the, the Zippy Cammy Zippy Nicks. Yeah. yeah. I guess so, they're called that because they have zippers. <laughs> yeah, it's very excited about the zipper. Well, if you've never seen a zipper before, I imagine... Yeah, no, no, that's not the part that's making me go... "Mm." I know, I know. It's just like... Yeah. There, on a low bed, the sheet flung back, dressed in a pair of pink one-piece zippy jammas, lay in Lenina, fast asleep and so beautiful in the midst of her curls, so touchingly childish with her pink toes and her grave sleeping face so trustful in the helplessness of her limp hands and melted limbs that the tears came to his eyes. With an infinity of quite unnecessary precautions, for nothing short of a pistol shot could have called Lenina back from her summer holiday before the appointed time, 
he entered the room. He knelt on the floor beside the bed. He gazed. He clasped his hands. His lips moved. Her eyes, he murmured. Her eyes, her hair, her cheek, her gait, her voice. Handlest in thy discourse, oh, that her hand, in whose comparison all whites are ink, writing their own reproach, to whose soft seizure the signet's down is harsh. A fly buzzed round her. He waved it away. Flies, he remembered, on the white wonder of dear Juliet's hand, may seize and steal a mortal blessing from her lips, who, even in pure and vestal modesty, still blush as thinking their own kisses sin. Very slowly, with the hesitating gesture of one who reaches forward to stroke a shy and possibly rather dangerous bird, he put out his hand. It hung there trembling, within an inch of those limp fingers, on the verge of contact. Did he dare? Dare to profane with his unworthiest hand that... No, he didn't. The bird was too dangerous. His hand dropped back. How beautiful she was. How beautiful. Then suddenly he found himself reflecting that he had only to take hold of the zipper at her neck and give one long, strong pull. He shut his eyes. He shook his head with the gesture of a dog shaking its ears as it emerges from the water. Detestable thought. He was ashamed of himself. Pure and vestal modesty. There was a humming in the air. Another fly trying to steal immortal blessings? A wasp? He looked, saw nothing. The humming grew louder and louder localized itself as being outside the shuttered windows. The plane! In a panic, he scrambled to his feet and ran into the other room, vaulted through the open window, and hurrying along the path between the tall agaves, was in time to receive Bernard Marks as he climbed out of the helicopter. Yeah. That's... Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's gonna get crushed by the society. Yeah, um... I guess that yeah, this is the first time he's ever uh, been like that close to a woman he's been infatuated with. Well, he liked the other person, but it didn't happen. There's so much wrong with this. Yeah. That I don't actually know how to deal with it. Like oh, okay. I just go. I'm overwhelmingly. Blah. <laughs> um. That 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 says volumes, Ru. Yeah. I'm just like, none of these things are good things in terms of what's going to happen and how it's going to re how that's going to play in the society that has been existing out there. Yeah, because it's not appropriate. No, well, here's the weird thing: it's not appropriate for him and his society. If Lenina was away, she would be encouraging it and wondering why he wasn't going full hog on her. I'm sorry, that was probably a bad use of language there, but... <laughs> As to why he was not progressing, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there's no... I mean, the, uh, aside from the fact that also the Shakespearean thing is, is technically re-emphasizing the whole uh, race, racial discrimination part. Read, read the first bit. Oh, that her hand in whose comparison all whites are ink... Oh, that'd be from Othello then? It's, yeah, we're talking about her skin color, and that's the whole point for him. He's never seen someone. This is, this ah, is the, yeah. I get, I get you, I get you, yeah. And this is, this is why this whole thing is even more distasteful, because it's this, this implied 
oh, I've never really truly felt what I felt for the others because they weren't like they weren't. Ah, yeah. It, yeah. So it's there's a racial element to this too, which is kind of gross and making a gross scene even grosser. Yay! Well, we might be able to move on to the next chapter, depending on how long it is. Yeah. Um. Well. Yeah. It looks short. Let, let's go for it. Wow, this is the first for Brave New World. Two chapters yeah. in an episode. That was pretty short. When I when I was coming up to the end, I'm like, wait, this is it? Hmm. Oh, I did want to ask, did you want to say anything about Bernard's little escapade? Bernard's, okay, so we have Lenina, who's just being completely traumatized, the most trauma ever in her whole life, and with no educational preparation to deal with it. Bernard at least has some educational preparation because he understands the programming aspects and has psychology background, so he might have some sort of ability to cope a little bit more. And yet, Bernard's the one who goes and decides to give himself a chance to enjoy the luxuries and the amenities of civilized life, yes, yes. Whereas Lenina... She's just like, oh, well, she's drugged up. She'll be fine. She's going to be safe. Yeah, she'll be fine. Like, what? Uh, My only thought is that, like, the instant she got back to that um, office, you know, where her luggage was, she was basically like, I'm out. Boom. And, you know, moving someone on summer holiday is probably not the easiest thing to do. Yeah, no, it, I, yeah, that would be part of it. I, I would also agree. But, I mean, he could have gone, look, take a small dose so that we can go and I can drop you off at the hotel again. He could have done all sorts of things. There were so many options. But no, he was too obsessed with, I'm going to come up with a plan so that I can roll out my master plan. Well, she can just drug up and that's fine by me. That's the other thing. They both slept there. They got back there. She took enough Soma to last her 18 hours, if I remember the number correctly, whereas he stayed up all night formulating his plan. Yep. So he woke up in the morning and he's like, okay, I'm going to go off and do this in Santa Fe. But she, she's took so much Soma that, you know, she's gone yep. for a while. But the point is that he could have, and I'm, this is, I mean, the indication of this society is that you only think about yourself, even though you're meant to be also thinking about how you contribute to everyone else, right? It's a selfish society. It is all about me, 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 my plan, my job, my role, my position, my function. And it's never really about others unless it's talking about how they have their part to play so that you get to all enjoy society. And then in this particular case, he could have just gone, okay, well, let's organize you getting dropped off so I can go do my thing. But he didn't even go there. He just went, well, whatever, She's, she can figure her, her own stuff out. And that in itself is, I mean, yeah, he would have been a bit jarred as well. Going, I, I need to come up with an idea. But that's a whole, I don't know. I have feelings. I have feelings on this, mainly because this whole chapter has been very, <sighs> he didn't have to stay at the hotel and enjoy the luxuries. He could have come back quicker. Yeah. That's the main thing. That was a redundant bit. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Okay, well, let's see what happens in chapter 10. Mm.
The hands of all the 4,000 electric clocks in all the Bloomsbury Center's 4,000 rooms marked 27 minutes past two. This hive of industry, as the director was fond of calling it, was in the full buzz of work. Everyone was busy, everything in ordered motion under the microscopes, their long tails furiously lashing. Spermatozoa were burrowing headfirst into eggs, and fertilized the eggs were expanding, dividing, or if bokonoscified, budding and breaking up into whole populations of separate embryos. From the social predestination room, the escalators went rumbling down into the basement, and there in the crimson darkness, stewingly warm on their cushion of peritoneum and gorged with blood surrogate and hormones, the fetuses grew and grew or poisoned, languished into a stunted epsilonhood. With a faint hum and rattle, the moving racks crawled imperceptibly through the weeks and the recapitulated eons to where, in the decanting room, the newly unbottled babies uttered their first yell of horror and amazement. The dynamos purred in the sub-basement. The lifts rushed up and down. On all the 11 floors of nurseries, it was feeding time. From 1,800 bottles, 1,800 carefully labeled infants were simultaneously sucking down their pint of pasteurized external secretion. Above them, in 10 successive layers of dormitory, the little boys and girls who were still young enough to need an afternoon sleep were as busy as everyone else, though they did not know it, listening unconsciously to hypnopedic lessons in hygiene and sociability, in class consciousness and the toddler's love life. Above these again were the playrooms where, the weather having turned to rain, 900 older children were amusing themselves with bricks and clay modeling, hot the zipper, and erotic play. Buzz, buzz, the hive was humming, busily, joyfully. Blithe was the singing of the young girls over their test tubes, the predestinators whistled as they worked, and in the decanting room what glorious jokes were cracked above the empty bottles. But the director's face as he entered the fertilizing room with Henry Foster was grave, wooden with severity. A public example, he was saying, in this room, because it contains more high caste workers than any other in the center, I have told him to meet me here at half past two. He does his work very well, put in Henry with hypocritical generosity. I know, but that's all the more reason for severity. His intellectual eminence carries with it corresponding moral responsibilities. The greater a man's talents, the greater his power to lead astray. It is better that one should suffer than that many should be corrupted. Consider the matter dispassionately, Mr. Foster, and you will see that no offense is so heinous as unorthodoxy of behavior. Murder kills only the individual, and after all, what is an individual? With a sweeping gesture, he indicated the rows of microscopes, the test tubes, the incubators. We can make a new one with the greatest ease, as many as we like. Unorthodoxy threatens more than the life of a mere individual. It strikes at society itself. Yes, at society itself, he repeated. Ah, but here he comes. Bernard had entered the room and was advancing between the rows of fertilizers towards them. A veneer of jaunty self-confidence thinly concealed his nervousness. The voice in which he said, Good morning, director, was absurdly too loud. That in which, correcting his mistake, he said, You asked me to come and speak to you here. Ridiculously soft. A squeak. Yes, Mr. Marks, said the director portentously. I did ask you to come to me here. You returned from your holiday last night, I understand. Yes, Bernard answered. Yes, repeated the director, lingering. A serpent on the yes. Then suddenly, raising his voice, 
Ladies and gentlemen, he trumpeted, ladies and gentlemen, the singing of the girls over their test tubes, the preoccupied whistling of the microscopists suddenly ceased. There was a profound silence. Everyone looked round. Ladies and gentlemen, the director repeated once more, excuse me for thus interrupting your labors. A painful duty constrains me. The security and stability of society are in danger. Yes, in danger, ladies and gentlemen. This man, he pointed accusingly at Bernard, this man who stands before you here, this Alpha Plus to whom so much has been given and from whom, in consequence, so much must be expected, this colleague of yours, or should I anticipate and say this ex-colleague, has grossly betrayed the trust imposed in him by his heretical views on sport and soma, by the scandalous unorthodoxy of his sex life, by his refusal to obey the teachings of our forward and behave out of office hours, even as a little infant. Here the director made the sign of the T. He has proved himself an enemy of society, a subverter, ladies and gentlemen, of all order and stability, a conspirator against civilization itself. For this reason, I propose to dismiss him, to dismiss him with ignominy from the post he is held in the center. I propose forthwith to apply for his transference to a sub-center of the lowest order and that his punishment may serve the best interest of society as far as possible removed from any important center of population. In Iceland, he will have small opportunity to lead others astray by his unfordly example. The director paused, then folding his arms, he turned impressively to Bernard. Marx, he said, can you show any reason why I should not now execute the judgment passed upon you? Yes, I can, Bernard answered in a very loud voice, somewhat taken aback, but still majestically. Then show it, said the director. Certainly, but it's in the passage. One moment. Bernard hurried to the door and threw it open. Come in, he commanded, and the reason came in and showed itself. There was a gasp, a murmur of astonishment and horror. A young girl screamed, standing on a chair to get a better view, someone upset two test tubes full of spermatozoa bloated, sagging, and among those firm youthful bodies, those undistorted faces, a strange and terrifying monster of middle-agedness, Linda advanced into the room, coquettishly smiling her broken and discolored smile, and rolling as she walked, with what was meant to be a voluptuous undulation, her enormous haunches. Bernard walked beside her. There he is, he said, pointing at the director. Did you think I didn't recognize him? Linda asked indignantly. Then, turning to the director, of course I knew you, Tomakin. I should have known you anywhere, among a thousand. But perhaps you've forgotten me. Don't you remember? Don't you remember, Tomakin? You're Linda. She stood looking at him, her head on one side, still smiling, but with a smile that became progressively, in face of the director's expression of petrified disgust, less and less self-confident, that wavered and finally went out. Don't you remember, Tomakin? She repeated in a voice that trembled. Her eyes were anxious, agonized. The blotched and sagging face twisted grotesquely into the grimace of extreme grief. Tomakin! She held out her arms. Someone began to titter. What's the meaning? began the director of this monstrous. Tomakin! She ran forward, her blanket trailing behind her, threw her arms round his neck, hid her face on his chest. A howl of laughter went up irrepressibly. This monstrous practical joke, the director shouted, red in the face. He tried to disengage himself from her embrace. Desperately, she clung. But I'm Linda. I'm Linda. 
The laughter drowned her voice. You made me have a baby, she screamed above the uproar. There was a sudden and appalling hush. Eyes floated uncomfortably, not knowing where to look. The director went suddenly pale, stopped struggling, and stood, his hands on her wrists, staring down at her, horrified. Yes, a baby, and I was its mother. She flung the obscenity like a challenge into the outraged silence. Then, suddenly breaking away from him, ashamed, ashamed, covered her face with her hands, sobbing. It wasn't my fault, Tomkin, because I always did my drill, didn't I? Didn't I? Always. I don't know how. If you knew how awful, Tomkin. But he was a comfort to me all the same, turning towards the door. John, she called. John. He came in at once, paused for a moment just inside the door, looked round, then soft on his moccasined feet strode quickly across the room, fell on his knees in front of the director and said in a clear voice, My father, the word, for father was not so much obscene as, with its connotation of something at one removed from the loathsomeness and moral obliquity of childbearing, merely gross, a scatological rather than a pornographic impropriety, the comically smutty word relieved what had become a quite intolerable tension. Laughter broke out, enormous, almost hysterical, peal after peal, as though it would never stop. My father, and it was the director, my father, oh Ford, oh Ford, that was really too good. The whooping and the roaring renewed themselves. Faces seemed on the point of disintegration. Tears were streaming. Six more test tubes of spermatozoa were upset. My father! Pale, wild-eyed, the director glared about him in an agony of bewildered humiliation. My father! The laughter, which had shown signs of dying away, broke out again more loudly than ever. He put his hands over his ears and rushed out of the room. Okay, so Bernard got his way. Yeah, that that was a very... He couldn't have planned it better if he wanted to. No. And also, the um, he used his moment of humiliation to destroy the director. Yeah, and, and it's funny. I mean, I don't really feel sorry for the director because he chose that point because he wanted to make an example out of Bernard and then it backfired in his face horrendously. Yep. But also, on top of that, the way that Linda is sacrificed for yes. this is disgusting. Terrible. And the way that John obviously doesn't know what's going on. <sighs> has now just publicly been rejected. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's um, that's going to do wonders for his uh, emotional well-being. Yes, I mean, it's not like he's suicidal to begin with. Mm. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. this is going to need a warning. Because <laughs> it's referencing different activities again that are definitely in need of a warning. I'm wondering if... Yeah, I'll add that too. Yeah. Henry Foster might have just been uh, promoted. Also, I, I like how um, it's it's not that he really likes Bernard or anything, but he's basically like, are you sure you want to do this to the director? He, he, he feels like it's not needed. No, because he does his job. Yes, he's isolated. Yes, he's an issue, but he's not going to actually, no one takes him seriously. So who cares? And that's the weird thing, because his big uh, grandiose speech, the director's speech, was all about, uh, you know, or, or was it when he was talking to Henry? 
Um, um, the, the, the idea that, you know, murder is just an individual and hell, we don't have individuals in this society. What even is an individual? But, you know, like the, the idea of doing things differently, going against the current, as it were, that, that can... That's worse. That can and, and pollute. Telling, yeah. But, but it's weird because, as you say, no one takes Bernard seriously. So is he really polluting anyone? No, and that's the whole point. The only reason that the director picked on him was because he felt challenged. Mm. Like, just simply the fact, what was it that the, the, the director used as a reason? I think it was because the director just wanted to chew him out. Well, um, he, he knows about Bernard's unorthodox, like, you know, he doesn't take Soma, he's not sleeping around as much as he should. Well, I wonder also if the directors, because you know how Bernard feels like people are following him and tracking him? I'm still of the mind that that paranoia is just Bernard being Bernard. Um, and, you know, talk does get around. I'm thinking I'm thinking more the reason, of course, is because the director let himself be vulnerable and he told Bernard that story. Yes, that was it was. It was the fact that he felt like there was a vulnerability. And I mean, Bernard ended up exploiting it, but it was only after. Yes. After he was made to feel fear. So this whole thing has come from fear. Mm -hmm. Had there not been that fear, he might have gone, look, yes, I want to cause disruption to society, but I don't need to humiliate the director. I can just bring it up with him separately so he can address this. Yeah. He could have, this could have gone completely differently had the, had, uh, the director not attempted to humiliate or threaten him. Yeah. So Bernard was not willing to suffer for his particular, I mean, we've had this discussion before. He actually wants to fit in. Yeah. And he can't, and it's frustrating for him. So that's why he says what he says, because he can't fit in, but he wants to fit in. So, yeah. Unlike Helmholtz, who's just going, there's something, he fits in, but something is not quite right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, two very short, like, uh, these chapters are almost just like single scenes. I mean... Chapter 9 did have the Bernard bit before the main uh, scene of John breaking into Linda's uh, quarters, but this one was pretty much just the reveal, as it were. Yeah. Well, it's probably, there's a lot more going on, but it's just that it's hard to track. Like, you've got the summary of what happens in, in, the, in the entire building, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, that... It almost felt like we were going back to the start of the book as it was going over the, the entire complex again. Yeah, it's like this scene give, reminding us, okay, so remember, yes, you entered the the um, reservation and that was that contrast. Let's contrast us back into this scene. It is. It does feel a little bit like a scene like in a theater piece, which with the Shakespeare references makes sense. There is that Shakespearean element. Another thing that came up previous chapter when um, the when he so when Huxley uses certain words, it's really odd because they feel like someone who's using big words that have no meaning because that's not what they like it. I can't understand how like he's using certain scientific terms and throwing them in between where they don't actually necessarily provide a logical outcome electrolytic shaving right right like like the um like the zippy not quite like the zippy jammers uh, but, but, but the zippy no. jammers you know they're referring to the fact that they're 
there's a zip. But electrolytic shaving makes okay. no sense. You, you're for a minute there. I thought you were talking about his use of descriptive terms like his adjectives and adverbs because he does use fairly uh, precise words that I don't encounter in many books. No, no, he's he's good with his adjectives. That's not the issue. My criticism is things like when we've had this before, where I go, that doesn't make sense scientifically. <laughs> but when when you say something like electrolytic shaving, for me, all that comes up in my brain is someone's using Gatorade for a closer shave. Like it's not. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, if it was that easy. Uh. Or or they're using like the, the, it's it's some sort of thing where they where they're using a, a, electrolysis which again not the most logical choice. I guess in my mind I think of like, you know, a shaver that has a thin like electrical current that will shave off the the, the hair for yes, I don't know that's... how that would work, but that's what I see. I see I can see that except Electrolytic is a very strange choice of words. Right, right. Anyway, but there's little things like that, that that for me can be a bit jarring. That's why when you read that bit, it took me a while to kind of go, okay. You, you may notice in terms of my reading rhythm, often I will try and power through certain odd terms because they don't make sense to me as I'm reading them. So rather than kind of let a silence fall on the word that I'm having trouble going over because like uh, in my mind, I'm not quite understanding it. I, I kind of move ahead. Mm. But it's like, I think that's, that's part of it is like that weird meaning. Sorry, I'm just reading like words in between now. I'm going, wait, what? Whistling think, of the girls over the test tubes. <laughs> I, I, I think it's also um, because it's a science fiction book. So, you know, he wrote yeah. this in the 1920s. He's, he's looking ahead and he's just going, these are these are science fiction sounding words, and let's just throw them in. the The reader can think of them what they may. Because we talked about, you know, like uh, obstacle golf and uh, elevator squash. Like they they, yeah. they evoke images, but he never, or at least so far, he has not explained how any of them work. Because no. maybe he doesn't want to. Maybe he's just like, "That's a fun idea. Let's throw that out there." Yeah, that it's, it does feel like that a little bit, like. Mm. Oh, in the meantime, the brass balls on Bernard. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, for for as much of an outcast and meek as he often comes across as a main character, because we've been with him, this was definitely um, a gr a grand show of courage from him. Hmm. Well, also, I mean, going back to the beginning of chapter ten, it's talking about this idea of. The fetuses grew, so either um, gorgeous blood surrogate or hormones, the fetuses grew and grew or poisoned, languished into a stunted epsilon, right? Mm. So the idea that this, the trauma that Bernard has experienced has started somewhere in that process as well. And so he's just continuing mm. that languishing, I guess. I don't know. There's a lot of layers to this. And th that kind of also is a promotion of... How do you put it? When you promote this ideal that that the conditions of pregnancy and birth are a determinant of who you are in society, that in itself is also a form. You know the concept of ableism that disability determines, or that you make assumptions about disability as being able or not able to contribute value to society. Yeah. That aspect, yeah, it's it's repeating that concept, but in a very in a, oh, but we have a function for them. 
kind of kind kind of an uh, an arrogance. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's not uh, not seeing them as uh, people in their own right. Yeah, they they they're people for the function of productivity, and they are productive because we've we've designed them to be. Like it's. Uh, yeah, so many things with this chapter that I want to warn about, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to warn about the obvious, which are, you know. Whenever you want to do that, I'll yes, pop it I'll at the that. front. Maybe make a list of the things you want to. Yeah, I've, I've scribbled in the side. Like, there's the sexualization of children again. Yay. I, I, mean, I mean, it's only a sentence, but yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. And I might actually mention the stalking. Stalking. Although, so, so here's a thought, though. In repeating like those things where we've had um content warnings about a lot of this stuff before what 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 do you think are the odds that someone would without listening to those previous chapters of the previous content warnings would listen to this one they might still they might decide oh okay this one's gonna mention that child sex thing again how about i give this one a miss right now because i've just had a really bad Oh no, that that's very fair. That's very yeah, fair. So this, yeah. So this. So yeah. So this. You can choose when. Um, so th this is a little debate. This is a discussion because Dave and I actually had this discussion a while back, reading an article on it, and this idea that. Oh, well, um, where was, so, sorry, Rue. Where th this whole bit's not going in. Okay. Well, we could, you can mention. But we can it. still like, it's, have. It's not a can... bad one. It's it's a good conversation to have because the idea that there are people who there are people out there who don't just don't believe in content warnings, and then there's people who go like everything should be given content warnings, and then there's those who go content warnings add as a as a barrier and people don't actually work on their trauma and that we should have exposure therapy, and then something that comes out of clinical like if you talk to clinicians they'll straight up tell you and patients they'll tell you. The point of exposure therapy is that it occurs in a controlled environment and that the patient is engaged in a manner that involves consent. Non-consensual uh, exposure therapy is harmful. And that's why we have content warnings. So people can choose when to expose themselves to what. Oh, speaking of exposure therapy, I read a fascinating article the other day about using virtual reality to cure agoraphobia. Yes, um, there's some really awesome... Let's talk about tech because we can. There's some really good studies on using virtual reality as a platform for various um, psychiatric conditions and psychological, using it within psychotherapy, but also to help people manage um, phobias, manage, you know, process trauma, because that way your exposure happens, but it's exposure in a very safe virtual kind of environment and you are in no wise unsafe and you can kind of build it's the same way i try and i have a huge arachnophobia issue mm. and what i'll do is if i can and if i'm in the right frame of mind i will try and expose myself to looking at a couple of pictures right um and i try and i start with little things like jumping spiders because they kind of like there's a cartoon or there's an animation that's kind of cute and I'll build up from that and then kind of try and get used to seeing spiders spin their webs. The movement is the problem for me. Yeah. Um, it's the jumpy, jarring movement that freaks me out. Well, um, well so, eight, yeah. eight legs uh, is, is a strange way for any creature to move. Look, I understand. Yeah. So I have no problem with the physics. I get it. It's understandable. It's how they are. No, but, but they're it's just, unnerving because they're so fast yeah. as well. 
yes, the skittering and the jumping and the, the, the suddenness of the movement. Um, I'm, I'm, I have issues with sudden movement anyway, but hmm. especially that kind of, I've had some experiences as well. So technically my phobia has, has, has trauma in there. Well, we also live in Australia, so meant, yeah. living here is an experience with a spider immersion therapy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Although, I don't deal well. I, I, I will say our, um, where I'm living now, the apartments, uh, the landlord uh, makes uh, make sure we get regular pest control. And this last summer, very saw very little of anything. Yeah, there's um, my mom has a, a tool or a, a way she addresses it, besides from us also regularly pest controlling. She will tell me, hey, Ruha, I need you to leave the room right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, all right, <laughs> bye. <laughs> You can... They don't. She doesn't say that there's a spider. Mm-hmm. All she says is, "I need you to leave right now," and then I leave. And and most of my friends will also know not to go. Oh, look at that! There's a spider. But they know not to do that. They just kind of mm. go, "Hey, you need to just leave for a minute." <laughs> oh, yeah, the memories. Okay, well, we'll keep going. Uh, let's see. So. Is there there's, anything else you want to? Discuss I'm just thinking. About there's so what, many different ways oh, Bernard could have done this. Have Have you processed what happened with John and Lenina a little more? My, mainly, I I get why John did what he did because he is a product. Again, he's a product of trauma. He has problems. He's not going to understand what is and his boundaries, as you put it. He's an adolescent has difficulty with his boundaries. He did stop himself from. Mm pushing the boundary too far um, and addressed and was ashamed of the thought. And I think, I mean, in our, in our quote unquote enlightened society that we currently live in, the whole point is that when you have a thought like that, that you would go and you would actually work on it and address why one would have that thought or impulse. Mm. That is what we're encouraged to do. Well, what we're meant to be encouraged to do. in our quote-unquote enlightened society that we currently live in. Um, The point is that having a a potentially harmful thought towards others and not acting on it shows that he has discipline and he has some sort of integrity, even if it's... Even if he's going to struggle in the society that they're currently in, Hmm. uh, that they've now gone to. The self-control, like, I... I, It's good. Self-control, good. However, this obsession with Lenina is not going to serve him well in the slightest. Mm. Guaranteed, no. Don't see this as going well. Um, Especially with Lenina being conscious that she needs to not be dedicated to one person and one person alone. Yay! Because everybody's for everybody, right? Oh, here's a question. Mm. They're back from their vacation now. Do you think she wants nothing more to do with Bernard after that trip? Oh, I think once they've figured out what to do with Linda, once Linda, Bernard now would be in a position of power. Mm. And or, or, everyone or least... else would not consider him odd anymore in the sense of, they will still consider him odd, but he's not as amusing and odd as the entertainment he's brought back for everyone. Yeah, yeah. When you put it that way, yes, yes. And so I think he's going to be in a, in a different position, and whether that influences how she interacts with him, I don't think she has 
I don't actually know if anyone has respect for anyone in this society outside of their well, position and function. I was just thinking about that respect. The, 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 the term kind of presupposes the idea of boundaries, right? Because you respect that there is a limit to how you interact with others and what, what other people might be yeah. comfortable with. And there are no boundaries in this society. Well, there are, but they're not boundaries that are due to individual needs. They are boundaries as determined and programmed with them as to what the society deems is and isn't an appropriate reaction. This is actually a really interesting book to read when you struggle with social boundaries, right? Mm. When you struggle with societal boundaries versus individual boundaries, when an individual sets boundaries for me, I can relate to that much better than when society tells me, oh, that's just not socially appropriate. So yeah, say I laugh at something when I'm uncomfortable, I'll laugh. A lot of us do. Not mm -hmm. many, uh, not everyone, but many of yeah. us will laugh because we're uncomfortable um, or we'll make an inappropriate joke. Like, yeah. I'm in pain, but at least I'm not dead. At least I know I'm, you know that idea of when you're in pain, you know you're alive? Yeah. I must be really alive. Like, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a very, it's a chronic health kind of gallows humor. Yeah. Clinicians do it. Patients do it. Problem is when you go to a clinician and you use gallows humor, a clinician gets confused because they're like, okay, well, it mustn't be a big deal then. Uh. And it's really funny that a population that engages in gallows humor has difficulty identifying it when they see it right in front of them as a coping mechanism. And in society, we have boundaries, we have structures in place, like if, but as an individual, if someone tells me, look, I'm not really comfortable cracking jokes about my disabilities, I'm not comfortable with, with l laughing at my own disabilities, that's cool. With that, in, that's an individual choice. Yeah. And that individual has the right to determine that. And then as a society, we don't have a right to push our perception of, but it's just a joke on that person because they are affected by it directly. They are harmed by it. So it's really quite complex. I think humor is a good topic when we discuss boundaries because it is abused. And it's so subjective. Yep. Whereas in this society, now going back to Brave New World, they have structures in place, they have boundaries, but they are not based on individual discomfort or need. Yeah. They are based on the society functioning as a cohesive whole. That's why um, there was no problem with, uh, what's his name? I mean, he was getting called out. So Bernard was getting called out for, he's an alpha plus, he's meant to behave a certain way. He's been given a lot, and the consequences are that he's meant to have certain views on sport and soma, and he's meant to have a certain sex life and a certain teaching pattern of infantility outside of work hours. Yeah. And he's refusing to do that, and simply by saying, I don't understand why we have to be infantile the whole time. Like, why can't we just be... And I, the reason I think that they are recording and hearing what he's saying is or Lenina's telling Henry Ford. I mean, they mentioned, we had that before where Henry Ford and Lenina would have pillow talk, mm. right? So they gossip about each other. Everyone gossips about everyone because everyone is for everyone. You exist yeah. to entertain and amuse each other. So whatever he said to Lenina, whatever Bernard said to Lenina would have been heard by Ford and Ford would have mentioned it to the director yeah. as an amusement or gossip or passing in passing. Yeah. Gossip is normalized. Um, and he, because that's what he said to Lenina. I don't want to, like, what if I don't want to behave like a child? 
when it comes to emotions. Yeah. That was their conversation. Yeah. As to whether it was in the hall or whether it was overheard or whether it was, I, think, I thought it was on the helicopter. I'm yeah, not sure, they, were, they were looking at the ocean. She was terrified that what, they were out there and it was quiet. And... Yeah. So there is information coming back somehow. And those things are the structure that that's the order and stability that they're talking about. The order and stability depends upon these very explicit rules that by which to work. So it's, it's, it's just um, as to whether, and the problem is that John's coming in here and he has completely different understandings. He has boundaries based on individuals, not on collective yeah. necessarily. Um, I mean, he has boundaries that work within the collective society from which he originates, but it's not this society and they have completely different structures. That's why his mom, Linda, had issues. Yeah. Because her boundaries are very different. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's definitely, um, it's worth exploring maybe as a topic and if anyone's out there who wants to really go into it. But the idea of humor, I know my mom did an assignment on this back when she was teaching um, English as a second language, that humor, because of its subjective nature, is not always a good tool for um, la learning languages mm. in, in different languages. You have to actually get to know the boundaries and the context of the humor in order for it to be more effective as a learning tool. Yeah, and, and the, the whole idea of um, language and culture being so tightly connected that... Uh, yeah. While there is things that we as universally find funny, there are many different shades depending on which culture you go to and yeah. how their language works plays into that as well. You know, search, certain languages, um, wordplay works different than in other languages. Yeah. I mean, and that's why, for example, we have such a heavy, that's why there's been such a, uh, as an oppressive tool, as an, a tool of oppression, the removal and the erasure and the constriction on language mm. is one of the most powerful tools of oppression in terms of uh, indigenous culture, in terms of colonized areas. That's how it was effectively done, was to try and disconnect with language, and, which immediately affects culture. What was, so, you know, going, going back to 1984, that was the whole idea behind Newspeak. Yes. You, you limit the vocabulary and you limit the thoughts that the people can have. Yes, precisely. And that's the thing that, and, and if we discuss Helmholtz brings that up, mm -hmm. that the fact that he, he can use as many words and as many expressions as he wants to, but in his case, it's the ideas that he, he can express that are limited. I've, I've got a question then. Do you think John's brought his copy of the works of Shakespeare and do you think he's going to show them to Helmholtz if he has them? Definitely. Definitely. Or he knows them off by heart anyway. That, that's probably more um, likely. <laughs> he's able to yeah. quote them when he's in there with Lenina. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the thing we have to, to reflect on as well. I think the two different arguments that are being raised by 1984 and Brave New World, respectively, are that if you, chain, if you curtail the language, you curtail meaning. Right? Is, yeah. is one of them. One of them saying, hey, if we remove language and we, we completely destroy it, we, we cause a disconnect. They also destroyed monuments, so they renamed things. Okay, so that yeah. was one thing. Yeah. But then, this is a counter argument. They've kept a lot of these monuments. They've just edified them and changed the meaning of the words. So in this case, it's not that the words have lost their meaning. It's the application 
that changes the meaning. Yeah. And that's a whole, I mean, that's both sides of this argument. You can see how they're both valid. Yeah. Like, I mean, I always go back to the word cool. We had a discussion with uh, one of our listeners, one well, discussion, just a, a little comment, a little chat, and we were talking about um, how things like y'all and cool and like these words exist. And they are, I guess, a form of, of um, newspeak in, in our understanding of it. But then the me, it, it cool has existed in a previous uh, incarnation it has a different meaning but in a colloquial sense it's a new meaning has been generated for it so that's a whole nother topic and that's where we are with brave new world that's what's going on here is mother father have completely different meanings because of the society in which they now exist well i it feels like you know the meaning is exactly the same but uh the the power of the word has changed. I think impact the impact. Okay, yes, meaning is not meaning is is can in I, I'm I'm using limited language myself here, but meaning for me has two things. It's how it's perceived and what is being expressed. So how I guess you're yeah you're right. The reality in this case shapes the perception and the meaning. So it becomes a whole question of when is something perception, when is something reality, when does uh, meaning change due to like the, the yeah, and impact. In, and you were talking about uh, difference in boundaries between the individual and society. It feels that the meaning of words and language is definitely a societal um, pressure rather than, you know, I, I today I could decide that, you know what? The word duck means the thing I wear on my head, and I'm going to continue the rest of my life saying duck when I refer to my so, hat. <laughs> that reminds me of a scene in, in Mean Girls where she goes, just stop saying fetch, man. <laughs> like, fetch, great. <laughs> stop saying fetch. Fetch is not a thing. Um, <laughs> like, but, 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 you like know, it, it's, yeah. it's that idea that it doesn't matter that I'm calling a hat a duck because no one else in society that's not going to catch on. Those words mean completely different things according to where I live. And when I use that meaning, people are just going to look at me funny. Well, that gives us a whole discussion on like me. You could go on and on and divulge, uh, like go into the whole, well, the context, the setting will change things as well. And that's the thing, like if it's the context and setting of a, one society compared to another society in one culture, another culture, all these things. And then how much of it is also the other way around where culture is affected by the ability to use language? Yes, we know this. We've seen this. It's, it's a thing. We have so much. Uh, I mean, I'm not a literature major. You have uh, you're not a literature major, but you you I would say you're a literature minor, aren't you? Essentially. Uh, I'm a lifelong reader. I think that's what. <laughs> yes, we are. We are from the school university of life when it comes to reading, but language, like it's language, is something I think that we all participate in and even help shape. And that's maybe a responsibility we do need to be a bit more aware of. Well, also, I was just thinking um, in terms of you know between like two friends, you can often have in jokes that rely on certain words that make you both laugh. And if you do them in public, other people are gonna look at you strangely. Or, you know, there are subcultures, like if, if you skateboard or if you play video games or you yeah. read or, 
or you play this sport or uh, go to museums or libraries. Spinal dust. (laughs) See, see that, 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 that is a good example of an in joke. Our listeners are like going quit. Um, Okay. We can explain. We don't need to explain. We don't need to, but it's funny. Because you always know that explaining the in-joke makes it really funny and people don't just look at you weirdly when you do. Yes. <laughs> but, but yeah, um, so it's like as a whole society, you know, we have these pockets of interest that each have their own language. And, I, you know, actually that relates highly to academia because the, the little school you're in definitely has its own language with regards mm. to research as well. Yeah, and then, then when does it become language when does it become jargon when does it like it's 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 definitely it's an it's a whole topic and if this encourages someone to go down the path and study this that's awesome not not our particular conversation but this concept of language and culture like there's some really good courses and some really fascinating literature out there and there's also so much more we can find out and i think we need to because that's the whole point of our existence is to try and figure out how we exist (laughs) And how we can all exist, preferably. But yes. Okay, well, I mean, we ended that with quite the discussion. Uh, as always, the music at the top of our podcast is Soma by Lionel Moser. At the end of the podcast, it's I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. You can find me at Rue McMoo. And you can find our podcast at SMBSLT Podcast. And that's both on Twitter, on Facebook. And if you add an at gmail.com to the end, you end up with our email address. Uh, please get in contact with us. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, we'd love to have some feedback from you, all you wonderful people out there. Uh, if you have suggestions mm-hmm. for future books you might like to get our takes on as we read, we'd be open to them. And if you want to send us some random articles that discuss like this topic, for example, on language and literature and culture and all these things, that's cool too. We like reading. Reading is good. We like reading? Who would have guessed? No. As long as it's not paperwork I need to fill in for a university, I'm good. <laughs> and we come full circle. So until <laughs> next you. time, folks, I hope you're all having a pleasant time. Stay safe and enjoy your reading. Thank you. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.